0: Well I once went on this leadership training course. A bunch of us were taken out bush for a week and we would, we did all these crazy things and what they did, they put each one of us in charge of a certain section and the people who were running the, the, um, event, the camp, they critiqued us on how our leadership went. It's all very, um, um, uh, scary and all this. Anyway, it sort of says something about me that, uh, The even though there were all these corporate leaders there, I was nominated to lead the first bit of the adventure, and that was just buying the food, packing the all the equipment we needed, and you know, packing the trailer. Um, But these guys, you know, who's the loudest voice in the room? Who's the guy who's up front? Yeah, you can see. Anyway, these guys were sly who were running the camp. And they gave us the instruction book. Here's the instruction book for everyone. But they had intentionally mucked the order up, put it all in the wrong order, um, put bogus information in there just to see how we would react. And I tell you, chaos broke loose under my leadership. And, um, and so, you know, we were three hours late before we drove out of there it was already, you know, 9 o'clock at night as we're driving to go to, to camp. We still hadn't cooked our food, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, I remember as I was reading through this rule instruction book that it says, whenever you travel over water, you must wear life jackets because we had some, you know, stuff for going on water. And we're driving up the highway just about to cross the Pine River Bridge, just over that way. I don't know where it is. Um, you know what it is. And so I'm going, hang on a sec, Stop! Pull over, pull over. And so the guy pulls over and like, we're about to go over water. We've got to put on the life jackets. This is a true story. And the guy pulled over. Boy, did it start a discussion, let's just say. Man, that's stupid. We don't need life jackets to go over a bridge. And I'm like, no, no, the book says whenever you travel over water, you've got to wear life jackets. And they're going, no, it's late. You know, we're tired. No, no, we, these guys are watching us. They're going to be, they're going to hammer us for not following the rules. And they're going, we're tired. We don't want to do it. Who cares? And I'm like, that's when you've got to care the most. When you're tired, that's when you've got to do it. So here I am, 9pm at night standing on the side of the highway, trying to find life jackets in this trailer, most of the team hating me, what should I do? What should I do? We've begun this new topic for the year, rules for freedom, common sense for the not so common life. And in the context of our year here as a church, We are trying to integrate a community hub into our life. What's the purpose of our community hub? Connecting with everyday people at their point of need with the gospel such that their lives might be transformed. We want God to transform lives with his love just as he's transformed ours. And God seems to do most of his work through people, through us, the spirit of God living in us. And uh, he's come to set us free. We better know how to help other people be free. We need to learn the rules or the language of freedom. What does it look like? Do we understand? How do we explain it to others? And last week I took you on a journey and it was a bit of a meaty journey. I said that the early church discovered that salvation was an individual decision. It was about what you chose rather than what tribe you had been born into. Therefore, if everyone had to choose, Everyone had the God given ability, the God given capacity to make decisions. And like I said, they didn't always think that was true. They didn't think slaves, women, you know, peasants, they didn't think they had the capacity to choose. But they suddenly realized God says everyone has that ability. If everyone has that ability, everyone should be given the freedom to do that. We should free the slaves, give people the right to vote, bring equality in. So it was the beginning of this revolution. And we said that was society. We chose as a Western society to give everyone this individual autonomy. Everyone had to um, have the ability to choose. But individual autonomy, it sounds like freedom. It sounds like freedom. But individual autonomy is really... You know, everyone doing what they want. It's the ability to choose your poison. You know, what am I going to be a slave to? I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to become a slave to my passions and desires and my gratification. And at the, at worst, if that's the way we live, that's the definition of anarchy or chaos. Everyone just does whatever they want. At worst, it's anarchy and chaos. And the early church said, in the context of it, this individual autonomy, the risk was chaos, but the reward was that people would, try, would find true freedom. and that true freedom was the ability to obey God. as counterintuitive as that follows, uh, as that seems, the ability to actually follow God. In other words, we don't naturally follow God. Our natural instincts aren't to follow God. But when we do have the power to follow God, we discover that he's the king who transforms us into everything we've always wanted to be. He transforms us into who we truly are. It's like following a coach on a team. And the coach tells you this and you're like, oh, I really want to do this. I really want to, I want to score the goal. I want to, I want to show off, but I'm going to do what the coach says. And, the, and that means your team goes to places you never could have gone on your own. So ironically, freedom is finding the right rules to follow or the right relationship to be in. And by the rules, I mean rules like we heard last week, whatever you do, Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. If only we could live like that. This week, we're looking at the other side of freedom. So, last week, Paul, St. Paul was talking about those who'd been bound up by the law. You know, the law like don't eat lollies? Remember that law? And then they got the freedom and all all hell broke loose. I'm just going to eat lollies whenever, you know, chaos. So the early church, it was like, woo we can do whatever we like. And Paul's going, no, that's not right. This week, St. Paul is talking to people who've been set free from the burden of the law. But it's like, oh, that's scary. I want to go back. I want to go back. There's actually a strong desire in human nature not to want to think. You know, Paul, your sermons, yeah, they're good, but they're like, they're so, I don't know, so theoretical, so theological. Just make it easy for us. Just tell us what we have to do. Tell us what we have to believe. Give us the answers. Give us a list of the things that we have to do to be saved. And I know Fritz talked about this a couple of weeks ago. You know, other religions have the eightfold path or the, the five pillars. The Jews, we actually have the Ten Commandments and we have the Westminster Confession and things like that. And they're kind of saying, well, here is what you must believe to be saved. or well, here is what you must do to be saved. We have a tendency just to just, just make it simple. Just do that for us, Paul. And I've actually read critiques of Christianity from other religions. And often they say Christianity is too complicated. You know, their beliefs, they're, they're convoluted. There's just no simple list of rules that every Christian must do to be saved. You know, Islam is easy. It's got the five pillars. And I don't know if you know what the five pillars are, but the five pillars of Islam. First one is the declaration of faith. You have to declare that Allah is God and Muhammad is his prophet. And you make that declaration, you've done pillar one. Pillar two is obligatory prayer. You know, I think it's five times a day kneeling down to Mecca and praying. And that can get pretty binding up, can't it? Every day you've got to do that. Compulsory giving. You have to give alms to the poor. Now, in the church we talk about 10%. Theirs is, I think, 2.5%. So you've got to give 2.5 away to the poor. Fasting in Ramadan, you would have heard about that. so one month a year you 've got to fast during daylight hours and you can eat at night and a pilgrimage to Mecca once a year once in your lifetime, you have to go to Mecca. And if you do that in Islam, then you 'll be saved it's nice and easy and in fact, you can make a historical argument. Because Muhammad lived in a community with Jews and Christians. And you can make a historical argument that he saw what the Jews did and he saw what the Christians did and he said, you know what, I'm just going to make a simple religion for simple people. Now that's, that's my take on things. Just give them the five things to do, don't make it too complicated, it'll work. And you know what, it did work. People signed up in droves like, this is easy. Just do that and you'll be fine. Just tell us what we have to do to be saved. Just Give us a list. And in Christianity, we have the tendency to do the same. So I'm not just critiquing um, Islam because Islam has actually got a really deep theological um, tradition as well. Along the way, they went, you know, we didn't want to take this a bit deeper. They got a really rich de- de- theological um, tradition. It's when they kind of go back to a really simple thing and just say, bang, that's it nothing else. But we do that in Christianity. We have a tendency to go, you know what, we're going to dumb it down, black and white it, make it simple, you know, go to church, don't swear, don't smoke, don't um, sleep around, don't drink and you'll be saved. And all we've done is create our own five pillars that we judge people by and we evaluate. And so we've just created another law that ties us into knots. So the bad news is that Christianity, God didn't give us a brain for no reason. He actually wants us to use it. Now, that doesn't mean Christianity isn't simple. In some ways, it's as simple as whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. But then you have to think through, what does that mean? What does that look like? How do I do that in relation with others? And our passage starts today. The law brings death, but the spirit brings life. And then he tells this story about Moses and his face glowing and fading away, wearing a veil. And we haven't done that yet in our journey through Exodus. And you might never have heard of it before. But what happened was when Moses went up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments and the law, he was in the presence of God and the presence of God is glorious. And that glory was on him. So when he came down, he didn't even realize. He comes down and says, hey, I've got the law. And they've looked at him and freaked out. Whoa, what's wrong with your face? Gl- you you know, you're glowing. And so so he didn't scare people. He put a veil on. But the other thing was when he came down, that glowing faded. It wore off. But he kept the veil as well so people wouldn't realize It's faded. It's kind of like when he's got the shiny face, he's talking to God. When he hasn't got the shiny face, we don't have to worry about him because he's not talking from God. So I'll keep the veil on so they don't know. Now, when you watched all the Moses movies, they don't put the veil on. They skip this bit. You know, this is what it looked like. Well, this is a weird thing. And in this passage, Paul uses that as a metaphor. He says, the law was good, but only so good. It's goodness was fading. Paul was not saying the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments and the law are bad and terrible and wrong. He said in Romans 7, the law is holy. It reveals the nature of God, the very character of God. In other words, the intent of the law is good, but the practice was bad. You know, God's law is good, but we, how we tried to practice it, was bad. So, how is it bad? How is it bad? Well, firstly, it makes us fault-focused. Here's the things we can't do. You know, when someone tells you what you can't do, what do you think about what you can't do? Imagine if in Christianity we had one simple law. Every morning you must be there to see the sunrise. That's all we had to do. Well, we'd all be up there what there for the sunrise, praying together, whatever, maybe singing and all that. But given enough time, you know, I was sick, I didn't make it, or I had a big night, I slept in, or I just got old and I couldn't get out of bed, and, and suddenly I missed it. And all those who hadn't missed it yet, what would they do? They'd weaponize the law. You weren't there for the sunrise. You're not a real Christian. You're not committed. You know, get out of here, unclean. We become fault-focused because of the law. We become hypocrites. What if one morning I wake up and I'm like, I missed the sunrise. And then I go and like, ooh, no one noticed. No one noticed. Everyone thought I was at Woody Point and everyone at Woody Point thought I was at Sutton's Beach. Phew. Oh, phew, no one noticed. I put a mask on. Yeah, I was there. Yeah. And, and, and how else do we hide? We kind of hide and think, oh, I'll, I'll point at someone else. Oh, hang on. You weren't there. I, I was there and I saw that you weren't there. So we become hypocritical and judgmental. And it, it, it makes us become legalistic as well, don't we? We find ourselves on the side of the highway at 9pm trying to force a group of people who don't like us to wear life jackets over a bridge. Mm. Paul's point was, if this had glory, if these rocks carved with the law had glory and they brought Death. Then what about this? How much more this? Jesus' death, His resurrection, and this spirit that is now within us. He's contrasting. You had a law that was on the outside. Now you have a spirit that was on the inside. And if you think about it, why was Moses' face actually glowing? It wasn't because of the law but because he'd spent time in the presence of God. And it stopped, it faded because he was no longer in the presence of God. And Paul doesn't say this, but in some ways he's saying, the Spirit is the presence of God in us, and that's not going to fade. That's not going to fade. The law is good, but compared to the Spirit, it looks bad. This new covenant brings us freedom, no more hiding. Paul says when you read the Old Testament, don't get trapped behind the veil thinking, oh, oh, we've got to follow those laws. Let Christ rather bring a new light on what those laws mean. And the passage now. now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. It's probably a verse you've heard quoted. We're going to make this move from law to spirit. Now, I'm not saying, oh, we ignore all our child safe requirements and we ignore all the workplace health and safety and we don't pay people what the law says. I'm talking about our moral life, not our, the life we have to live. But at the same time, we don't want to become so legalistic in everything. And that's what, you know, we talk about bureaucratic red tape. How do we take the spirit of what it's saying? You know, like Inspector Clueless, not being an Inspector Clueless. Remember how the passage started? We are ministers of this new covenant. Not the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills. The Spirit gives life. And you see this in in Scripture. When people ask Jesus, what must I do to be saved? Actually, this is the disciples in in Acts. What must I do to be saved? What's the do? What's the do I got to do? And they said, the do is to believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Hang on, that's not a do. Well, it is a do because the believe means trust. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's actually not a law. It's a relationship. Trust. Enter a relationship, a spirit-empowered relationship. And how do relationships work? I hope your relationships work like this. I hope you don't have a list of fifty things each of you say, This is what you've got to do if you want to be in relationship with me. I hope that's in fact we know when relationships start pulling out the law, that's when our relationships are in trouble. Relationships are feel, they're give and take. You know, openness and close, you know, vulnerability. It's a dance. It's a dance, it's a feeling each other and going, ah, that way. And that's why Christianity requires us to go, I've got to kind of think this through. What does it mean? How do I dance with others? And that's why Jesus transforms the law on the mountain to the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, it's one thing you have to ponder for the rest of your life. It's fear, it's spirit. Okay, so what does that look like for us practically on the ground in the year 2020 what does that mean for us because again oh, what does that mean give I kind of want a list but well let's think about tithing let's use that as an example you know what tithing is when um the church says or the minister says or the bible says you should give 10% of what you earn to god um and i know some people give all of that to the church. Some people say, well, I'll give some of it to, you know, world vision or something else and I'll give some of it to the church. But, um, and I know that it's complicated because if your husband doesn't come to church or your wife doesn't come to church, then that can be really hard. Or you think, I just, I, I'm, I'm struggling to put food on the table. But anyway, I want to talk generally about this idea of tithing. So how do we apply what I'm talking about? Well, we know, and I read a study on tithing, people from legalistic churches and legalistic faiths. So I'm talking really legalistic. The Mormons, I didn't know this till I read it, the Mormons, every year you have to front up before the bishop and tell them how much you gave to the church. And if it's not 10% and you can't justify it, you get banned from the temple. That's pretty strong, isn't it? We're bringing that in next. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, and they'll say things like, "If you don't give ten percent, you're not saved. You're not a true Mormon. You're not a true Christian." So these legalistic faiths, even though they do that, they still only get on average five percent. So that's interesting. A lot of people are, but it's motivated by fear. You know, you have to do this. You, it's stick. You'll get hit if you don't do this. So they have an average. Um, giving of five percent of their income. So probably a lot of people give ten and some don't, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, you can you, if you give a reasonable excuse, they will take that. And I unfortunately have heard from churches that are more down this line, stuff like that. They'll say from the front, if you don't give two percent, ten percent, you're not saved, you don't go to heaven. I have even heard, and this is really sad, one lady I had up north, she said she couldn't have kids. And people in her church said, it's because you don't tithe that God's made you barren. And that is a lie. That is wrong. And that is not true. But imagine the judgment and the fear that she felt. That's not the way it works. And so we know the New Testament frees us from the law. The truth is, you don't have to tithe to be saved. You don't have to tithe to go to heaven. Your salvation is not bound up in the tithe. Now, when we tell people this, the jump is to apathy. Oh, cool. I don't have to give any more. Then I won't. And so at the other end of the scale liberal churches churches that have a really kind of oh, yeah we don't really take the bible seriously their average giving is 1.5% of income so this leaves me as a minister in a real dilemma it's like do i just hammer everyone you got to do it you got to do it and get this because when i say you don't have to do it anymore people are like ah oh, don't I won't i'll just throw in a bit of this throw in a bit of that I don't want people to be bound by the law. But when we say you're not bound by the law, human nature is to throw out the law and to swing right the other way. But that's not the gospel. So what should our attitude to this and and every issue be? Don't give, don't tithe out of fear, and don't become apathetic. Tithe or give because it's how you get freedom. It's how you discover freedom. Tithing frees us from the tyranny of money. If you don't want to be bound by the tyranny of money, give, give. And like I said, it doesn't have to all be to the church. If you become generous, it frees you from the tyranny of money. You place your money under God first not God second to money and that's the blessing of tithing it's actually freeing you from the tyranny of money because money if you're you know money if your money's your god you'll be in debt you'll you'll gamble you'll be stressed uh, you'll be possession bound tithing frees you Tithe because you love God and you're saying yes, yes. So what are churches who do this? What's their rate? Well, this is the sad and tragic thing. There are no churches like that. There are people who are like that in churches, but they can't measure that in the stats. Um all they know is there's people, there's lots of people who give generously. Um, But wow, wouldn't it be good to be a church like that? Said, I know, Paul said, I don't have to be saved. All of these people are saved. You don't have, I don't have to give 10% to be saved. But I don't want to make, I don't want that to make me apathetic. There's a, Principle behind why God asks us to be generous and give. And it's because that is the the path to freedom. It's the path to freedom. That's how I want to live. That's how I want to live. When you think about it, when I was a teacher, the best students in my class, the best students in my class were not the kids who did the work because I was going to punish them. Unfortunately, most kids <laughs> in most classes do the work because, you know, you're going to get the cane, although you can't do it anymore. You're going to get detention. You're going to roust out. In fact, the, the culture in my school was these teachers will yell at you if you don't do your work, so you better do your work. I was I was silly because I didn't yell at kids. So guess what my kids did? They didn't go from here to here. They went from here to here oh, Mr. Clark doesn't yell at us. Cool, we don't have to do anything. And that wasn't very good as a teacher. <laughs> and I and I had to work out, what, what's going on? So I had to learn to raise my voice. I actually learned to follow through and say, these are the rules. If you don't do it, I didn't yell. I just put them on detention. And they suddenly worked out, hang on a sec. He really means it. But I tried to teach in a way that brought passion into them and It's a long story, but my kids flipped. 80% of them, they started doing their work because they loved it. We want to learn. This is really interesting. This is great. I'm excited about this. I still had students who were like this, and I still had students who were like this, but the bulk of them switched on to learning. They came to me and said afterwards, we hated you as a teacher. We hated you as a teacher but you became our favorite teacher because somehow I fluked this. And they got the best results in the school um, at the end of the year. My school used to analyze all the HSE results and they were like 10% above every other class Um, because they switched on. Don't follow God from fear. Don't become apathetic in your faith. Live out your faith from a passion for God, a relationship with God. Um, the spirit that's within you. And when you do that, your life will glow. Your life will glow. Shine, show them what you've got. Let them wish that they were not on the outside looking bored. On the side of the road at 9 p.m. looking for life jackets, I suddenly realized how legalistic I was being. And I got back in the four-wheel drive and said, drive on. And the leader whispered to me, what changed your mind? And I said, you had said to us a leader's task is to lead their people between chaos and legalism. And that was legalism and it was killing the group. And he winked at me and said, I like your thinking. Although two days later around the campfire, he did laugh and laugh as he told everyone in all their years of running this camp, that was the first time a guy had ever stopped them beside the road to make everyone wear life jackets to go over a bridge. In everything you do, do it for the glory of God. Live by the Spirit for where the Spirit is there is freedom. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, maybe we recognize ourselves in this reading. We're bound up by the law. We're always thinking of details and petty stuff. And and seriously, when we think about it, we realize it doesn't make too many friends. We might feel satisfied in our, our righteousness, but That's perhaps not where we're supposed to be. Maybe we recognize ourselves in the apathy. Yeah, 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 I used to be like that. Yeah, but I got used to it. You know, I used to to give more. I used to to pray more. I used to read my Bible more. But then I realized I didn't have to do it. And when the, the, the stick went away, so did everything else. And now I just come for the motions. Oh, Lord God, let us rediscover our first love. Fill us anew with your spirit that our hearts might glow. That we might want to read our Bible because we want to hear from you and and talk to you. That we would pray because you pray, you talk to someone you like, someone you love. That we would come to worship because our heart wants to overflow in praise for you. That we would give because you've given so much to us, Lord. I just want to give back to you. That we would we'd serve because we know, oh, actually when I let go of some of my desires, when I let go of some of my selfishness and, and chase you, Lord, I become a better person. May we renew our heart to you this day in Jesus' name. Amen.